Let us pray. Gracious God, we thank you for the great gift of being alive, for the gift of your son, for the hope of resurrection, and for the opportunity to spend time studying your word. We pray that you would speak to us today, that we would be transformed ever deeper into the image of the one in whose image we're created. We love you. We say thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, let's go ahead and dive into Daniel chapter 7. Right off the bat, a few things to name. In a sense, Daniel 7 is going to be really different from chapters 1 through 6 in terms of genre. We've been reading a lot of hero tales, and now we're going to dive into some apocalyptic literature. Um, But Daniel 7 really forms the climax of the book. And as we shall see, even though it is somewhat different, it really builds off of and brings into sharper focus the first six chapters. And so let's go ahead and dive in. In the first year of King Belshazzar of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions of his head as he lay in bed. Then he wrote down the dream. I, Daniel, saw in my vision by night the four winds of heaven stirring up the great sea and four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I watched, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a human being, and a human mind was given to it. Another beast appeared, a second one that looked like a bear. It was raised up on one side, had three tusks in its mouth among its teeth and was told, arise, devour many bodies. After this, as I watched, another appeared like a leopard. The beast had four wings of a bird on its back and four heads and dominion was given to it. After this, I saw in the visions by night, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth and was devouring, breaking in pieces and stamping what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that preceded it, and it had 10 horns. I was considering the horns when another horn appeared, a little one coming up among them to make room for it. Three of the earlier horns were plucked up by the roots. They were eyes like human eyes in this horn and a mouth speaking arrogantly. As I watched, thrones were set in place. And an ancient one took his throne. His clothing was white as snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames and its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and flowed out of his presence. A thousand thousand served him and 10,000 times 10,000 stood attending him. The court sat in judgment and the books were opened. I watched then because of the noise of the arrogant words that the horn was speaking. And as I watched, the beast was put to death and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beast, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. As I watched in the night visions, I saw one like the son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. And he came to the ancient one and was presented before him. To him was given dominion and glory and kingship, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that shall not pass away, 
and his kingship is one that shall never be destroyed. Okay, let's dive into Daniel 7 verses 1 through 15. Now we've gone back in time a little bit. If you recall from chapter 6, it was the Persian king who threw Daniel in the den of lions, but we're back to the time of King Belshazzar. Belshazzar was the king in chapter 5 who saw the writing on the wall, and he promoted Daniel, but that very night Cyrus came in and conquered Babylon. And if you've been reading the book along with me, as I know that you have, the typical pattern is that Belshazzar or Nebuchadnezzar has a dream and Daniel's the one who comes in to interpret. So notice the shift. This time it is Daniel who has the dream and Daniel is terrified by this dream and he doesn't fully understand it. And in this dream, we have four great beasts coming out of the sea. Now in biblical language, the sea is really the place of chaos. It is a scary place. It cannot be tamed. People go out to sea and they never come back. And so, for instance, in the book of Revelation, whenever we have the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven to earth, we're told that the sea is no more. It's not that God doesn't like water or the ocean. What's being hinted at in the book of Revelation is that all the sea represents where all the chaos and monsters live, where people go and never return, that that is banished when the Lord returns. Or think about Jesus walking on the sea. This is not just about Jesus's dominion over nature. It's not just about his miraculous power, but it's about Jesus taming that place of chaos, right? Jesus speaks to the sea and says, be still, and the sea obeys. Because in the Bible, the sea obeys no one but God. It is where scary things happen, and so, of course, in verse three, four great beasts arise, not out of the jungle, not out of the forest, not out of the desert, but out of the sea. Now, you might recall from chapter two, whenever there was that statue in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, where four different things were described. There was the statue with the head of gold and the silver arms and uh, the thighs of bronze and the legs of iron and clay. I think that we can safely assume that these four beasts represent four different kingdoms that are somewhat similar to the statue in chapter two. And I have some notes down here. I think that a good assumption is that the first beast, the lion, is likely Babylon. And um, that is also the gold head. Um, it's interesting that we're told that this lion had eagle's wings. You might recall from our first session when we looked at Deuteronomy 28, when um, the people of Israel are told the Lord will bring a nation from far away from the end of the earth to swoop down on you like an eagle. So here, this eagle is being linked to Deuteronomy 28. So the eagle the gold head in chapter two, this is Babylon. The second beast, the bear with the three tusks is most likely Persia. As for what those tusks represent, perhaps it is three successive Persian kings or maybe one region with three subdivisions, but this would be the silver arms of the statue in chapter two. The third beast doesn't really get a lot of attention in this book. No one seems to be too concerned with it. 
Um, this is the leopard. Perhaps this is Greece, Alexander the Great, and the Greeks conquered after Persia. Uh, not really prominent in this book. But the fourth beast, this is where the action is. Clearly, the fourth beast is being elevated above the others. It is the most scary of all the beasts because it's really the beast that the writers are concerned with. And as for who this fourth beast was, I guess it depends on who was reading the book. If you are reading the book in the second century BC, you probably equated the fourth beast with uh, Antiochus Epiphanes IV, the Syrian megalomaniac who persecuted the Jewish people and was miraculously beaten back by Judas Maccabeus and some of his brothers whenever some of the Jews rebelled for a season. Uh, or if you are reading this in the first century, either as a Jew or a Christian, then the fourth beast would you would have been all too happy to name this fourth beast as being Rome. But the point is that for the first readers, everyone knew that these beasts represented different worldly kingdoms and kings, one after the other. Um, this never would have been taken literally, you know, reading apocalyptic literature and actually thinking that there are these real beasts, these dragons that will come out of the sea and assault us before the rapture. This is not how uh, scripture was read whenever it was written. The example I give, if you see here, you have the uh, donkey shaking hands with the elephant, and everyone knows that this would be representative of Republicans and Democrats. So this is a political cartoon that no one takes literally the fact that one day these two animals will greet each other, but that these are symbols for two political parties, perhaps, you know, making friends before a debate. Everyone in our day knows what these symbols mean. And what I'd have us consider is that it's the same way with apocalyptic literature, that what these horns and tusks and, you know, why one's a bear and one's a leopard, some of that is lost to us because we don't live in the setting in which this literature was first written. But what we can assume is that what's puzzling to us would not have been as puzzling to the people to whom this book was first written. And that for an oppressed people, that apocalyptic literature, a word that means unveiling, um, this was a way of having a voice and communicating some things, perhaps in a more indirect way, but in a way that empowered the community and gave them a hope um, about how God's kingdom would prevail. And so it doesn't really matter who you think these four beasts are. The point is they are what the Bible calls the powers and principalities, and they come out of the sea and they speak arrogantly. Um, this is just what imperial power does whenever they believe that they are the only show in town. They set themselves up and they speak arrogantly. And so in verse nine, Daniel is watching in his dream and we're told thrones are set up in place. Now, I want to emphasize the fact that thrones is plural. There is not one throne, but multiple thrones, maybe two thrones, maybe there's more than two thrones. But in the context of Jewish monotheism, there is only one God. It raises the question, who is the other throne for? 
Uh, one rabbi said that the extra throne was for David or whoever the Lord's Messiah would be. And of course, we have in that tradition down here, we have Psalm 132, verses 11 through 12, where it says, the Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body, I will set on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my decrees that I teach them, their sons also forevermore shall sit on your throne. And so there is this tradition within the Jewish faith that not only will God sit on a throne, but that the son of David, that the Messiah, that God's established person or people, they too will sit on thrones. And of course, Jesus was aware of this tradition. If you look at Matthew 19, 28, Jesus says, truly, I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And so this whole tradition of thrones being reserved for God's people is brought up here in Daniel chapter 7. But of course, the ancient one also takes his throne with white clothing, with a throne of fiery flames with wheels burning with fire. And of course, I believe this points to the majesty, the magnificence, the holiness of God, because we have a thousand thousand serving this ancient one. And then we're told that the court sits in judgment. Now, this is a very subtle shift, but all of a sudden we are in a courtroom. So what's happening? Who is on trial? Who is going to be vindicated? And of course, if you've been reading the book of Daniel, it is the beasts who are on trial and who will be found wanting. It is the imperial kingdoms who set themselves up and speak arrogantly, who think that they are in charge. They are actually in the courtroom the whole time and that there is an ancient one sitting in judgment. And basically the theme of Daniel is their time is up. And then who's going to be vindicated? Well, we're going to find out in a little bit because then one like the son of man emerges. Now, if you're looking at these notes, it says, I saw one like a human being. I always just use the NRSV translation because it's easy. And for the most part, this translation doesn't bother me, but sometimes their commitment to gender inclusive language kind of takes it a little bit too far. And what we have here is a better translation would be, I saw one like the son of man, because this really is tying together um, Jesus's language in the gospel, that this is where that son of man language starts to emerge. And this son of man is not the same as the ancient one, but he is presented before the ancient one, and he is given dominion, glory, and kingship. And so as Christians, we can ask the question, well, who is this one who's really not technically, well, I, I, in Trinitarian language, this gets kind of dicey, but to stick within the language of Jewish monotheism, you have the ancient one, and then you have the one presented before the ancient one who shares in the fullness of the ancient one's dominion, glory, kingship, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him, who has an everlasting dominion. And of course, as Christians, it takes little to 
make the association of the Son of Man of Daniel chapter 7 with what we believe to be true about Jesus. And certainly, as you read Jesus's own self-understanding of himself, referring to himself as the Son of Man, make no mistake, this is what Jesus was borrowing off of. This was the imagery and the symbolism that he was incorporating into that title when giving an account for his own person and work. Okay, I'm going to go ahead and stop there. That's a that's a handful. And so let's just dive right in and see what you think of um, all these beasts in apocalyptic literature and the Son of Man. Donna? I truly appreciate the cartoon that you showed because that made it very clear to me that in different in in different cultures those things just it would have been very clear to the person reading it just as it was you know the imagery was very clear very clear to me and i'm not sure why i haven't understood that so clearly before but but um that really crystallized it for me so thank you well good and you know it is a metaphor and it's not perfect but what i wish to point out is you know if if any of you grew up in places where the book of revelation was read as like a secret book to be decoded when very specific literal events were going to happen in the future it's just the best way of pointing out that that is not the way that was not the intent of this genre of scripture called apocalyptic and it's Mm -hmm. a very specific genre of scripture Uh, that really isn't a genre of literature anymore. You know, we don't really write apocalyptic literature. And if we do, we don't really mean it in the same way as apocalyptic literature and scripture. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. So apocalyptic literature, imagine that like there's this scene playing out on earth and you think that one thing's happening, but then someone kind of takes a curtain and you see what's happening behind that curtain. And then you scratch your head and you say, oh, what I thought was true is not true anymore because what I now see and what apocalyptic literature seeks to do is to kind of pull back the curtain so that you can see with clarity that God is sovereign, that God allows certain things to happen for a season, but to go back to chapter five, that the writing is on the wall for much of what you see, that there is a bigger story going on. And that in seeing that bigger story, the aim of apocalyptic literature is to transform us so that we live a little bit differently in the unfolding play we're a part of. That's kind Mm -hmm. of my best description, uh, but others can can give me theirs. When you talk about apocalypse, we think of revelations, which is what you're more, what you're saying that we're allowed to see behind the curtain, but I think it does, this particular book does um, show a little bit more of what the Son of Man or Jesus is going to do eventually, you know, where, where this is all going in the end, basically. And that's it. I mean, that, that is the intent of the book is to give you a vision to say, this is where this is, this is what reality is. This is where it ends up. And so do you wish to align your life where, where things are going? Because the outcome from apocalyptic literature is not in jeopardy. There's no like, you know, it's kind of like, you know, even in when Alabama plays 
some division two team in football and they have a 99.9% chance of winning, they still have a 0.1% chance of losing. You know, the point of apocalyptic literature is not that God has a 99.9% chance, but that the outcome is 100% certain. (laughs) And so in light of that, you know, when that veil is removed and you see it, how do you want to live your life now knowing what will remain for eternity? I mean, I think that's really the question of apocalyptic literature. In a way, this implies that there's some people in the know and a whole bunch of people who may know but don't want to know or don't want to live their lives accordingly. And so it, it, it sort of separates people into various groups, right? Or the, the wheat from the chaff is a biblical statement. You know, and, and I think that's an interesting way to start defining those that accept Jesus as a son of man as knowing the outcome and, and others not. I mean, I never really thought of myself in such an eclectic crowd. <laughs> you know, I mean, it, it, it sets up a social dynamic is what I'm saying. Well, it's, it's tricky. So, you know, one of the things when you said in the know, um, the uh, Greek word, I think it's Greek for, for knowledge is gnosis. And if you kind of research the early Christian heresies, kind of number one on the list is something called Gnosticism, where, you know, people, uh, you know, it's kind of a little group of people who think that they have been given special knowledge. They're the children of light. Everyone else is the children of darkness. It's very dualistic. And our special gnosis, our special knowledge makes us huddle in and feel good about ourselves while the whole world goes to hell. And that's, of course, not what the early Christian church is, right? I mean, the early Christian church, part of what it means for the church to be Catholic, that word means universal, which means like, no, no, we're not a little tribe, people from every tongue, tribe, people, and nation, that God is seeking to reveal God's self to all of them. And yet, the other side of that tension is, you know, and we see this in Jesus's ministry until the Lord opens our eyes, we're blind, right? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Um, Yada, I forget how it goes, was blind, but now I see, right? So (laughs) we're blind until God opens our eyes. And so there's kind of a tension there, Martha, between what you're saying um, and to also make sure that we don't see ourselves as a special group in the know. I don't know if that makes any sense. Oh, yeah. I mean, and I like the fact that you sorted it out as a tension, you know. And uh, So I really have to admire E.V., who was earlier making a statement. I think we should just pray for all people to accept this generosity of love. And I'm like, I, okay, yeah, we could pray for that. We should believe that our prayers are answered. But, boy, that's a big <laughs> transformation. I'd like to, to jump in about... What's helped me get wrestle with this literature, and I have to preface by saying I'm a birthright Episcopalian, so I, I have not had to rep, wrestle with the Baptist church. It's not, it's, not been, it's not been my problem. The problem is, for me, is what is Holy Scripture? But I think the question that's helped me, or the answer to the question that's helped me, is what, what is revealed? And what is revealed is the triumph of God. 
the triumph of God over the struggles and the, the, the posturing of the nations. Uh, what, what is the end of human life? Is it, is it same old, same old with this, this empire coming and then that empire coming and then we have the Russians and then we have the Americans and so forth and so on and so on. But the vision, the, the revelation is that God in fact will bring his purposes for, for history and the world to a fruition. And he will do this by one like the son of man. Mm -hmm. And of course, that's precisely what the New Testament is saying about Jesus. Here he is. This is the one who in the end will judge the world and bring it, bring it to its fruition. And the thing that is so dominant in the New Testament, what well, at least I think so, is you take Matthew's gospel, there's this terrible irony that the, the judges, the Pharisees, they're judging the judge. Mm -hmm. and, and so he comes before Pilate and he is judged by his own judge. And, and how, did, how, how does he bring this to fruition, not through the powers of empire, but through his death? This is this is at least what I think is going on the, on the New Testament adaptation of this. But what, what the author of Daniel is about is you, you small nation, what have you to fear? God is in control. Well, Philip, what I love about your comments, because you hit on two really important things. You know, it's not just who's going to triumph, but how will the triumph or triumph, right? And so... Who's going to triumph? Well, I mean, you read the book of Daniel, it's very clear. It's not Nebuchadnezzar, it's not Persia, it's not Greece, it's not Syria, it's not Rome, it's not any worldly kingdom. It's the King of Kings, Lord of Lords, and one like the Son of Man who will be appointed in order to usher in God's people to God's kingdom. So we know that God triumphs, but that's actually not the full story, the question also is, how does God triumph? Because we know how worldly kingdoms triumph. Manipulation, fear, power, violence, mm -hmm. right? And, you know, part of what we need to watch in terms of our own Christian witness, and we see this not just with, with certain evangelical Christians, or, but, I mean, we can see it in our own heart. The question is, how does God triumph? And Part of what Philip is pointing us to is the paradox of the cross, where the moment the judge is judged, in a sense, we are too. That it's like the suffering servant who dies on the cross, who is saving judge. I mean, like that is the, the way that God liberates and, and heals. And, you know, maybe not the full story, because we do believe that God, that the son of man will come in glory, but we got to be really careful about not remaking that event into, you know, just another bloodthirsty tyrant out to get people like this is the same God who returns in glory, who is not like Nebuchadnezzar, you know, who's not like the other Kings. And I think that's part of the point being made. I do think that that's, Yes, just the, 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 the contrast in what these, what these countries, and of course, 
you know, this is something we're still going through with different powers in the world. You know, the contrast between that power of empire, as, as Phil, uh, Philip was saying, compared to humility and, uh, and death of Jesus. Um, and that's very counterintuitive unless you kind of have, have seen that, that revelation. Yeah. And I think that was the problem, you know, in Jesus' time. They were all looking for, you know, a kingdom, the, the, the real kingdom and the, and the, the might of, of armies and stuff like that. And, and that's not where it ended up being. It was, it was kind of, it's kind of when you watch a movie and you, you think you figured it out. And then all of a sudden at the end, something happens and you go, oh my gosh, I didn't understand or see that at all. I didn't see that coming. And this is kind of like that. I just didn't see that coming. It's kind of like the first time you see the movie, The Sixth Sense, and you find out he's dead the whole time. You know, there's like this twist <laughs> at the end. Uh, but you're right. I mean, people expected, you know, when people in Jesus's day rejected Jesus, it's because they had a very clear image of what the Messiah would look like and Jesus didn't fit it, right? There was a big surprise. And uh, you're right about that, Julie. Another thing it seems to me that this opens up for me, and that is how should we view political power in our own time? I mean, here, here are the, these, these empires, for whatever their problems are, they do impose order on the earth. Uh, where, would, where would the Middle East have been without the Roman Empire? Well, <laughs> maybe not so good. Mm -hmm. But the thing is that, uh, I, I owe this to McKinnon, but what this is saying is these attempts by human beings are titanic. It's Titanism. We think we can control things. We think power is, we have power. And this is how we, we build this elaborate set of institutions and power centers over an abyss. That, and it, it, we can't, we can't, we can't deal with the abyss that underlies our history, our time, ourselves mm -hmm. can't be done yeah so what i think i'm hearing you say you know philip um is that the real spiritual issue so to speak is not the fact that there are rulers and governments but rather the spirit within them whenever they forget about god and kind of buy into their own power their own independent existence and really act and think as if they're going to live forever, as opposed to I'm stewarding a gift as a creature, a created thing who is meant to return glory to God. And I think we find, you know, the book of Daniel, if you read apocalyptic literature, it's very dualistic. So if all you have is apocalyptic literature, you're going to have a pretty negative view of worldly government. But of course, the book of Daniel is really nuanced. You know, Daniel will go to Nebuchadnezzar and say, oh, king, live forever. You know, he, he, his first loyalty is to God. And Daniel's very clear about that. I mean, he goes into the fiery furnace. He goes into the lion's den. But 
he also kind of helps out where he can. Same with Joseph, right? Joseph served under Pharaoh. Joseph's first commitment was to God, but he did what he could to, to help Pharaoh administer the affairs of the kingdom. And so on the one hand, like before we get you know too down on government, we probably like the fact that there are traffic lights and police officers and hospitals and passports to you know fly and whatever else that we enjoy, social security. So it's not the fact that governments exist, it's just the spirit within them that to use the book of Daniel, when they speak arrogantly and forget that they are a temporary entity uh, whose existence is meant to serve the creatures of God, not oppress them. I mean, is that about right? That's what I'm trying to say. I mean, how should we, how should we view the powers of this age, the powers of the world? Well, the way to do it, I think, is to say they're doing the best they can. Yeah. But that's, that's all. They are not all powerful. They are You know, Martha, I think that's a, that's a good point. Um, one of the things, though, that is, uh, I, I think that apocalyptic literature invites us to do, and that the Bible in general invites us to do, is to really use our imagination. I mean, so I'm not one of those people that believes... Um, that every reading of scripture is a good one. I think there's some really bad readings of scripture and we've discussed some of those. It's a bad reading of scripture to read Revelation, for instance, as a literal prophecy of uh, events to be decoded. But I think for apocalyptic literature, we're really invited to use our imaginations. And, you know, for the most part, we have been speaking of the beasts, these beasts that emerge from the sea and that speak arrogantly, um, kind of setting themselves up over and against God as nations, right? As Because that's who they are in the book, right? It is Babylon, it's Persia, it's Greece, it's Syria, it's Rome. We've looked at modern day nation equivalents. But, you know, in scripture, and especially for Paul, Paul speaks of the powers and principalities. And I think that the beast doesn't have to be a geographic nation that we learn about in history. You know, um, the beast could also be a philosophy or an ism, right? The beast could be communism. It could be racism. It could be secularism. It could be consumerism. Uh, it could be, um, it, it could be something it, basically, I think that we're invited to see the beast as anything that's kind of gotten very large and has this existence that it believes is independent uh, and that is the most important thing. And while nations are the easiest target, I think that we could also stretch and say, well, what are some of the less obvious beasts that have set themselves up? Uh, whether it's philosophies or institutions, like what other beasts do you see kind of in our world? And maybe that question doesn't make sense, but I think it's good to use our imagination and to ask the question. I think it's a very good question, personally. I don't, I mean, I think we've talked about it a little bit as you were, you know, you gave some good examples. Um, And, and that may be, once again, that may be why people are um, 
so steadfast in their beliefs is that they feel like they figured it out already and they know what the answer is. And so they, their job is to, um, to reveal their, their own revelation to others and to, to make sure that, that the others understand, you know, what that revelation means because they think it applies to everybody. And you're right. There, there are lots of things that it could be. Um, yeah. So I'll put another plug in for Philip's book. <laughs> I really love his attack on political economy and, and to see it from a religious perspective. I, I'd like to do more reading along those lines. Uh, I think that, uh, that, that our pretenses have to be revealed to us. We seem to be unconscious of our pretenses. And these empires are pretentious. They speak great things. Well, maybe Jeff Bezos speaks great things. I don't know. Uh, but I like the idea that it's not like you're going to figure it out. You have to see it somehow. That's what's going on. And What's going on, it seems to me, as I see it at the moment, is enormous pretentiousness. We've got this. Well, clear we don't. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, you, you think, I think about it all the time. I mean, there's crisis after crisis after crisis, and nobody seems to say, why? Healthcare, education. I just, you can go on. I, I don't know if y'all caught the kind of joke in verse eight. I was considering the horns when another horn appeared, a little <laughs> one, a little horn coming up among them to make room for it. Three of the earlier horns were plucked up by the roots. There were eyes like human eyes and a mouth speaking arrogantly. So I don't know who this little horn is, but you kind of think of, you know, I think of, for instance, Napoleon, um, this, this dictator who was apparently, you know, four foot eight, kind of marching around like a little dictator. You know, people probably would have, that's the little horn, you know, people kind of mocking his short stature. But, but to your point, Philip, of, you know, uh, we, we speak as if we got this. And this is scripture's way of poking fun, you know, everyone is ultimately a little horn is, is kind of, I don't know if you kind of see the joke being made there, but they're kind of mocking anyone who speaks arrogantly, anyone who thinks they've got this, uh, anyone who doesn't give glory to God and recognize God as a true ruler of all mankind. And so there's some jokes kind of also being made in this chapter. Go and ahead. That is, that is, how do we reconcile the son of man with the people, the holy ones of the high God. Um, I have a theory about that. Um, I got it from Richard, Richard Rohr. Richard Rohr said that God wanted to enter into a covenant with the people, of, and not Richard Rohr, what am I doing? N.T. Wright. God wanted to enter into a covenant with the people of Israel, and he gave them the Torah. And he expected them to always turn to him. Even the kings were to turn to God and were to be his deputies on earth. 
and they failed miserably. So he sent Jesus, who became the perfect Jew, the perfect Israelite, the one who always listened to, deferred to his father, said what the father told him to say. And so in that way, Jesus became the perfect representative of the covenant people. And in this passage in Daniel, you sort of see the same thing. You see the son of man as being like the representative of his people, the king of his people. He has done the job that they have wanted to do, but have ultimately been unable to fulfill perfectly. Yes, yeah, I, who do you think the holy ones are? I think the holy ones are the faithful remnant, the people who have tried their best to, to put God first in all things. So who do you think now when, and I'm with you, I'm not, I'm not oh, challenging. Oh, from political, do I think they're the, 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 do I think they're the people, the remnant of Israel? Are you well, like, just reading it as a Christian, right? As one who mm -hmm. believes in the death, resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, who, who would you say the holy ones are? Um, I think the holy ones are all, I think the holy ones are the ones who love God with their whole heart, soul, mind, and strength, and who try to the best of their human ability um, to love their neighbors as Jesus loved them. I think it's the ones who really believe their hearts are in the right place, and God is preeminent in all of their decisions, but who through human fallibility can't quite make the grade. I think that's really well done. I mean, for me, rather than offering a definitive answer to these are the holy ones, you know, that's mm -hmm. when we get it in a little trouble when we get too clear about who's in, who's out. What I see here, Evie, is a clear invitation, um, right? You have the ancient one, you have uh, the son of man. Uh, and then in verse 27, this is the end of the story. I'll start with verse 26. Then the court shall sit in judgment and his dominion, that's referencing the arrogantly speaking horn, right? This is the imperial beast. Then his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed. The kingship and dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall then be given to the people of the holy ones of the most high. Their kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom and all dominions shall serve and obey them. And this is referencing also the people of the son of man referenced earlier. So what I see here is an invitation. Real, I see two invitations. It's really one invitation, but two different, you know, emphasis, emphases. I don't know what the plural of emphasis is. Uh, one is to be part of God's holy people. I mean, we are invited to associate ourselves with this ancient one and with the son of man and for our deepest loyalty to be tied to this son of man and to this ancient one, as opposed to people like Nebuchadnezzar and these other worldly rulers. And we see this modeled in the book of Daniel by Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and by Daniel himself. And of course, yes, I also love N.T. Wright. Jesus was the perfect representative of this. He was loyal to the covenant in a way that the people of Israel were not, right? And so we are invited to link up with that covenant, to link up with Jesus. 
But then there's this whole idea of dominion. And as we read Genesis 1 and 2, we recall that Adam and Eve were given dominion. Um, This was not domination. They weren't there to, you know, um, rip the earth's resources away in pursuit of their own selfish wants, but they were there to steward the earth, to have some control, uh, to share in, in whatever it is that God was doing. And so part of that restoration of dominion is also basically saying that what you were given, your humanity in Genesis 1 and 2, that this is about the restoration of that, that what we're doing here is restoring your original design as a human being created in God's image, uh, that as Adam was given dominion, you are given that dominion back. Yes, as part of the royal priesthood. Right. Well, I consider those last verses sort of to refer to the new creation after Jesus returns again, that our ultimate restoration of dominion will be at that time. That's right. That, I mean, that's how I read apocalyptic literature. But that even now, some of that future, it's like reverse time travel, right? We don't go to the future. The future comes to us. This is how N.T. Wright speaks of the spirit, actually. The spirit, spirit breaks in from the future into our lives. And we then steward, you know, so dominion is kind of a funny word. But all that means is how do you steward that which God has entrusted to you? Your resources, your time, your relationships, your energy, your intellect right? You have dominion over some of your faculties. What do you do with them? Are they serving King Nebuchadnezzar? Are they serving the King of Israel? Uh, You know, what is your life serving? I think that's the question that Daniel would ask here and now. Good. I thank you. I I agree with that totally. Caution. (laughs) Yeah. I I have never, I've always understood the uh, holy ones that are about the throne as another way of speaking of the heavenly host. Mm -hmm. That is to say, God is surrounded by angelic beings through whom he governs and orders the world. And therefore the son of man is lodged as the chief above even the heavenly host. Uh, But I don't know, I'd have to go look at it again. Philip, you might be right contextually. I mean, you know, we, we would have to really scrape over Daniel 7 pretty carefully. Um, I, I think, so you might be right. The holy ones might, if we read the text carefully, it might be referencing the heavenly host. Um, and I think it's true. I go back to Matthew nineteen twenty eight. Truly, I tell you at the renewal of all things, when the son of man sits on his throne, you who have followed me will also sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And so I I think that there could be room for like a both and here where even if the text is referencing the angelic hosts of heaven, uh, that there is, I think, kind of the seed in this uh, chapter of the idea of that humanity also will be invited into the stewardship of the new creation, whatever that looks like. And that's kind of where the imagination breaks down, I think. Yeah, John, I think that the key word dominion that you were talking about 
because dominion over creation has always been a human function since Genesis. What is that Psalm that says you created man a little lower than, he, than the angels, but you've given him the whole earth, you know? Yeah. Um, I, I think, I think dominion, um, and it wouldn't, how could the Holy one, well, never mind. <laughs> this concept kind of kind of boggles my mind a little bit. I'll have to think about it some more. That's always appropriate with scripture for the record. Okay, it is at 2.30. We've been at it for a bit. Great conversation and um, just really appreciate the quality of conversation and the depth of thought that went into today. So thank you all so much. Thank you.